Hey friends, welcome back to the Living Truth Podcast. This is Michael Carey, your host for the show today, and I'm super excited about our guest today, Brian Mulder. Brian has been a volunteer for Living Truth in our Men in the Battle community for many years, facilitating men's groups, and he recently came on staff with Living Truth. He's just a huge benefit to our staff and our community and our ministry. So grateful to have him with us today. Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you, Michael. It's so good to be here and to be a part of Living Truth. Awesome. So, um, yeah, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about your history. Vocationally, you were a worship leader and an associate pastor for over 40 years before you came on staff with Living Truth. Yep. Uh, We've served five different churches in uh, California and Chicago area in St. Louis and here in central Indiana. And uh, I guess that gives you an idea of my age. Uh, But at the same time, part of the reason I'm on this call is that for many of those 40 years, I struggled in secret with my own sexual integrity, with pornography use, masturbation, fantasy, and was hiding really for many years in guilt and shame. I'm, I'm grateful to be in a free place now in terms of that part of my life. And I'm excited about being able to give back and help other men find that kind of freedom. Mm -hmm. And I have uh, heard so many stories in my professional uh, walk here in helping men as well of pastors that struggle. And it's just, it it is a real thing. Um, People might think that uh, that's, that pastors and people in ministry are immune to such struggles, but that's just not the case at all. So glad that, um, that, uh, God, you know, helped you step into the light and it is so refreshing and rewarding and the lying and the things that you mentioned and hiding is, um, always the case for every one of us who mm-hmm. struggle. So tell us the story about how you came to hear about living truth in this ministry when you moved to Indianapolis, or before you moved to Indianapolis even. Yeah, this is a, this is a great story. Uh, my recovery journey began about 13 years ago in the Chicago suburbs. And I was two or three years into recovery when we moved to St. Louis. And when we got to St. Louis, I found a group in St. Louis, a uh, parachurch ministry called First Light. And uh, I was part of a recovery group there. And while I was there, uh, actually began to lead uh, one of their recovery groups. And, and that just became something that I knew I would be doing for the rest of my life. No matter what, I'd be helping men and giving back. And when we moved to central Indiana, I knew I wanted to find a group here. I, I didn't know of any in particular in advance. Uh, I spent a day uh, with a spiritual director in Indianapolis. His name's Dave Borum. And I was sharing my story with him and said, I'm looking for uh, a way to connect with a similar group here in central Indiana. And he said, I know a guy. And uh, so he gave me your number. And so I called, we met in your office. uh, And uh, I, I realized pretty quickly that I actually had met your wife before because there was a workshop being held in St. Louis where I was leading worship. 
uh, and it was a workshop for for counselors and coaches, men and women that work with sexual strugglers mm-hmm. and with spouses. And I had met her, gone to one of her workshops, which was the top 10 things that a pastor should never say to a woman whose husband is struggling with unwanted sexual behavior. And uh, I got to know her a little bit, and I began to put the pieces together after I met and talked with you. And the great thing is you were just beginning to start a satellite group in the south side of Indianapolis, which is where I was living. And so I got a chance to be in on the ground floor of attending that group. And after attending that group for several months, I was able to start a group that I facilitated myself not too far from there here in uh, south central Indiana. Yes. I just love it how God brings the stories together. Um, and a shout out to Dave Borum, incredible guy. Um, I met him uh, in, he, he he took on the role and I hired him to be a uh, career coach when I went from uh, the IT industry into full-time ministry. So really neat how God puts all those connections together. Yeah, so, you know, we were in St. Louis and um, yeah, I, I didn't meet you that time because I was filming her doing that <laughs> seminar and stuff and handling technology and all that. So, uh, but that's, uh, that's so neat. And what a blessing that you came right at the beginning of Men in the Battle. Mm-hmm. I mean, when God first made it obvious to us that uh, it wasn't going to be at one church in central Indiana, but this was something that was going to grow and flourish. And so how great it was that you got to be a part of attending a group first, and then you went and uh, expanded and started mm-hmm. up your own group farther south yep. of uh, Greenwood. So. Right on. If we shift gears a little bit, I'd love to hear a little bit about your life growing up. Can you tell us some of that story? Sure. I was raised in the Midwest, Iowa, Minnesota, uh, by conservative evangelical Christian parents. Uh, They loved Jesus. They loved the church. They loved me. They still do. And uh, I just learned to love church. Um, One of the unique challenges for me as a kid was we moved a lot. I I think I counted, we moved nine times before I entered the sixth grade. And uh, I think I went to maybe seven different elementary schools. And it just kind of felt normal to me at the time. I learned to adapt. But at the same time, by the time I was in sixth grade, I really realized that I had a lot of insecurities. I was kind of always the new kid uh, on the naive side. I uh, got teased a little bit for being the new kid. And and I really, looking back, realized that I really struggled to find a sense of belonging, a sense of rootedness. Um, I, I'm sure I struggled with loneliness and, and feeling disconnected. But church was the one place where no matter where we lived, I felt connected. Uh, I felt seen, felt known, felt like I belonged, like I was a part of something uh, that was meaningful and bigger than me. I was uh, I was one of the good kids. Um, I was one of the kids that kind of kept the rules and stayed out of trouble, memorized scripture. Um, but one of the things that I realized looking back is somewhere along the line, I just picked up on this idea that that you have to be good to be loved. And I know that if I'd ever said that out loud to anybody, they would have said, no, no, Brian, that that's really... That's not true. 
but some part of me kind of believed that. I remember hearing the story of the prodigal son, and I remember kind of my takeaway from that as a kid was, don't be the bad son, be the good son. And uh, so I kind of lived into that idea. And uh, one of the problems of believing that you have to be good to be loved is that when you do things that aren't good, you feel like you need to hide them in order to experience love. And that just became uh, a pattern, maybe a subtle pattern in my life as a kid that obviously played out in my struggle with uh, sexual sin. Yeah, totally. And, you know, I um, yeah, I remember some areas of my life where I, I would have uh, said the same thing with that message. And, you know, I think just being in a culture, a performance-based culture, mm-hmm. uh, we no one is immune to believing that, that lie. Yeah. And in fact, in some cases, for the relationships that we um, get tangled up in, uh, sometimes... That that's not really a lie. I mean, it, sh- it is definitely a lie when it comes to God. Yeah. And we're supposed to love each other unconditionally. But who does that perfectly? Right. Yeah. Who loves unconditionally? Yeah. Perfectly. You know, yeah. I know I certainly don't. <laughs> but <laughs> yes. so, so to get tangled up in that and then to have that be a script that you live your life based on mm-hmm. is really common in what I'm saying. And then... Um, how how we you know when we live that script out um where does that take us the the different decisions that we make as a result and uh, the the turns and twists and things and which leads me to to the next question about um your first exposure to porn and masturbation and how mm-hmm. that played out yeah and how does that intertwine with that lie yeah i for me by the time i got to puberty i was chubby and nerdy and socially awkward, anxious, misfit, probably like three-fourths of the seventh grade boys in our country. But <laughs> but it, it felt like I was especially struggling with all of that. And around that time, I, I really noticed for the first time the magazines at the convenience store. And uh, I didn't think anybody was watching. I got curious. I paged through them. And I I still remember being fascinated, being embarrassed. Uh, I can still describe for you, I won't, but I can still describe for you some of those first pornographic images I ever saw in a magazine at the convenience store when I was 11 years old or so. And uh, I, I knew that there was something about this that wasn't good. Um, and so since I'd kind of learned if I ever do anything that's not good, maybe I shouldn't tell anybody. And one of the other things that was true in our house growing up was that we just didn't talk about sex very much at all. Mm-hmm. And I've read recently that the more religious your upbringing is, the less likely it is that you have conversations about sex in your home. Wow. And, you know, for my generation, I think that was really pretty common, uh, that that whatever we learned about sex, we didn't learn any of it from conversations with our parents. And um, so I kind of, again, grew up with this idea of, okay, when it comes to sex at home, we just don't ask and we don't tell. 
And uh, even though I was a good kid, <laughs> you know, I didn't smoke and I didn't drink and I didn't do drugs, didn't get in trouble. As as my father used to laugh and say, you know, we, we don't smoke and we don't chew and we don't go with girls that do. Um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, so, I, I learned to avoid all that sort of stuff. But, you know, fantasy and, and masturbation, I mean, I didn't have access to a lot of porn, but I didn't need that. Uh, I'd had access to my my mind and my body. And uh, it was just right. one of those things that was, you know, easy to hide. And, you know, when I thought about it and about my myself at that age, you know, I, I was just thinking, at least I'm not having sex with real girls. That's what bad boys do. And, uh, and it's not like a real girl would ever want to be with me anyway. Mm. As, as a middle schooler, I just kind of felt that. And so the whole thing, I just kept it a secret, a complete secret. And as I got a little older and got into high school, I got taller and I got thinner and I got contact lenses and I got a little better looking, I think. But uh, I was also a straight A student. I was a talented musician. So this idea of, of being good came easily to me. And I also realized that that through performing well, I could change how people responded to me instead of teasing me and making fun of me the way they did when I was a chubby little middle school kid. Uh, all of a sudden, uh, I was doing well, and I was admired and affirmed, even applauded on stage. Girls were interested in me. Pretty girls were interested in me. And that kind of changed my whole perspective on this relationship sex thing a little bit. I went to Christian college, met my wife there. We married young. Uh, and uh, when I finished college, I ended up working in ministry as a worship leader at uh, my first church out in Central California. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Um, that that story is all too common. And so getting married and getting into ministry, I already know the answer to this question, <laughs> but um, did... Did you still struggle with porn after that? Uh, the answer is yes. Um, you know, if you're from my generation, that is about the time when pornography became more available uh, than just magazines at the drugstores. Um, mm-hmm. It was in your home, on your cable TV. It was mm-hmm. at the video store where you rented Disney movies. Uh, and eventually, yeah. uh, obviously, it was on the Internet. And um, I would say that I struggled with self-control in this area until the Internet came around. And at that point, I was hooked. Uh, it was just so accessible, <laughs> so affordable, uh, free, Right. Uh, and Free. anonymous, at least compared to, you know, stopping at the bookstore at the drugstore. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I was also, you know, growing up and experiencing stress at work, uh, stress at home and uh, masturbation really with or without pornography became an outlet for me, a stress relief. And and at the time I could justify it compartmentalize it simply say you know i'm not having an affair it's just porn it's just masturbation it's not hurting anybody it's not affecting me significantly 
And uh, through all my years in ministry, I never, you know, crossed the flesh line, as we call it. But this became a pretty chronic thing for me. And maybe looking back, the amazing thing is that I pretty much kept it a secret till I was 40 years old. Um, that's, that's almost 20 years of marriage uh, before my wife found out that this was going on with me. And uh, that was a hard moment, a hard conversation. Um, but we worked through it, I think, the best we could at the time. And it really helped me for a while for it not to be a secret. You know, I think I went several months clean at that point, and I felt like, okay, maybe this is the turning point. Maybe this is all that needed to happen was for it to come into the light, and and now I'm going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I set up some accountability with some friends at church, uh, where we were we were honest enough to tell each other we're we're struggling, but not honest enough to be specific about how much. We were struggling, and and the truth is, Michael, I I wanted this to be over. Uh, I wanted to be able to say, I have victory over this. I wanted to be able to say, I used to have this problem, before I admitted that I had the problem. Mm-hmm. And so there would be some occasional acknowledgement of the struggle. Uh, I saw a counselor. Uh, I'd have some victory, some hope, then I'd act out, and then I'd hide it, and then I'd feel guilty, and I would tell my wife, and then there'd be a couple months where we were trying to patch things together, and I was doing okay, and and it seemed like when when the waters would calm, I would be right back into it again, and uh, I, I know I wanted to stop. I know I tried stopping, I, but I know I couldn't stay stopped. And uh, especially being a minister, I really felt like I did not have a safe place to ask for help, to be completely honest, and there was too much to lose uh, for me to risk telling the whole truth about what was going on. I really was afraid. I was afraid of rejection by my wife. I was afraid of rejection by my church, losing my job, friendships, all those kinds of things just added to the pressure to keep this a secret or or to reveal as little as possible uh, to get through life. But it wasn't working for me. Yeah. Yeah, the fear, the fear of the loss of relationship and, and all those losses that you mentioned is very real. And that that's what's behind um, the lies that we tell, whether it's lies to someone's face or lies of omission mm-hmm. by not telling, not confessing. And um, something interesting that you mentioned on, <clears throat> excuse me, the the way that this uh, affects your life. <clears throat> Cough. The way that this affected your life and you said, um, you know, it, it wasn't a drastic effect or it didn't seem to be. And, you know, when you were saying that, I find it so interesting that's, so much the case with when when we're when we're looking at porn and we haven't crossed the flesh line. In other words, we haven't cheated on our wives. We we haven't been with another human being. But um, that idea um, and that that's a lie that we believe because you know when you get on the other side and you get free, you really start to see all the things mm-hmm. and all the ways that it really was affecting your life. Right? For sure. I mean the yes. ways the spiritual growth the. Mm-hmm. Uh, Really getting in touch with who you are mm-hmm. as as a um, child of God, yeah, and all of the potential that we were 
um, uh, thwarting. Right. Um, that that we all the potential that we had that 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 we didn't uh, we were unable to activate because yeah. of the shame mm-hmm. that we were experiencing. Uh, the those years of of uh, looking at porn of doing this in secret really is costly, mm-hmm. isn't it? It is, and it affected in in ways that I did not realize at the time, but looking back, seem embarrassingly obvious to me. It affected the way that I interacted with my wife, uh, affected the way I thought about her, the way I treated her, uh, and um, you know, obviously, you know, every marriage goes through struggles and we went through ours but the fact that i went through them with this secret that i went through them with this hidden behavior made every aspect of the way we interacted with each other tainted by that and um it's been something that we've learned to work through and uh i find myself still at times realizing maybe seeing clearly for the first time a certain way in which that affected uh, Karen and my relationship with her and apologizing again for that and just grateful for where we are now, but realizing um, those were difficult years. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. And you said it to be able to see things clearly. Um, I was just thinking of the, uh, the men that I've talked to who talk about uh, their wives and, and the problems that their wives bring into the marriage. And I was remember remembering that verse <clears throat> of the, uh, the log and the speck, you know, we should remove the log in our own lot li- in our own eye. And it says so that we mm-hmm. can see clearly to remove the speck in someone else's eye. Right. In other words, when we're trying to address our marriage problems and we have a log in our eye, we are not seeing the whole problem clearly right. either. So many, um, you know, so, so much that we could say on that um, and how costly that it really is. And so, yeah, I just wanted to point that out. Uh, so I know that there's so many men out there who are quote unquote, just looking at porn, you know, mm-hmm. and they, they believe that it's not really that costly. Yeah. But the thing is, that's the the point. We don't know just how costly it is. Mm. Sometimes maybe we do, but we don't when we're in the middle of that. Yep. So what, what do you think was the turning point when you started seeking help and getting help? I was, I would say, looking for help for a while and getting a little bit. But uh, it was probably around the time I turned 50 that I realized that um, this problem is not getting better in my life. In fact, it's getting worse. And I just became miserable in that moment, kind of hopeless. And uh, I just, I don't know, I have a friend that said that was my bottom. Uh, And uh, it wasn't a, a big discovery or disclosure or anything like that. It was simply, I couldn't live with this anymore. And so I told my counselor the whole truth about how much I was struggling. I told my wife the whole truth about how much I was struggling. And and maybe the key for me in this moment was I told my boss, I told my pastor the whole truth about how much I was struggling. And and that was the thing that maybe was the hardest for me because it affected my job and my livelihood. It um, 
it was maybe the scariest piece of this for me, but it was perhaps the most beneficial because my pastor at that time, I would say, was just amazing. Um, he was so discerning, understanding, wise. Uh, we talked, and uh, he said, Brian, best I can tell you right now, your job's not on the line here, but we're going to have to work through some things. And so he said, you're going to need to put a plan together for how you're going to address this in your life. And it needs to include counseling. It needs to include, you know, group work, recovery work. And I'm going to need to talk to Karen, see how she feels about all this. Uh, And uh, it's not something that we have to announce to the whole board or the whole church. But uh, I want to bring the chairman of our elders in to this so that he can love you, pray with you. I'll coach him on it if I need to. And then we want to have one other elder uh, with you in this that can really be your advocate, uh, someone that you maybe trust more than any of the other elders. And so we set all of that up. And uh, he told me something I didn't want to believe. He said, Brian, I'm not expecting you to get this perfect. Uh, That's not going to be a requirement for you to stay on staff here. But I am going to expect you to work hard at it. I want to be able to have access to your counselor so I can check and see uh, how he thinks you're doing in terms of your progress here. Uh, We're going to help you to be able to afford some of these intensives that I think will get you some of the help that you need. And uh, and Michael, I I cannot imagine uh, anyone who could have handled this better than Dick did. And... um, makes me want to call him today and say thank you. I've talked with so many men um, in ministry that would describe the opposite kind of experience to you. Oh, yeah. That uh, that it their experience was shaming and threatening and ultimatums and, and, and anything but the kind of help that helps. Mm-hmm. And um, maybe the best thing that Dick did was he, he brought in Karen, my wife, and he just sat down and said... How are you doing? Wow. And just listened. Wow. He wanted her input on on decisions and what would be made. You know, if if you don't think it's right for Brian to stay on staff here, we will work with you. We'll figure something out. We're not going to do that against your wishes. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. And included her in all of that and included me in the sense of letting me know what he was talking to Karen about so that all of that uh, was safe and supportive and um uh and and it really got me into a recovery group for the first time and that experience of being in a recovery group um uh, introduced to just this idea that my struggle might not just be with self-control or with my character flaws my Mm -hmm. struggle might actually be an addiction Mm -hmm. you know it, it might be something that um, is way more complicated than just willpower. Yeah. And so uh, when I began to see and hear that and meet with guys and we talked about that, that first experience in a support group, I just felt for the first time in my life, I felt like I'm not the only one. Uh, I'm not alone here. Uh, there was a line that I heard, my insides didn't match what I saw on the outsides of others. Mm, And that big light bulb just went on for me. I've lived my whole life 
with that truth. My insides didn't match what I saw on the outsides of others and realized how that played into the whole struggle with unwanted sexual behavior and, uh, and learning to experience acceptance and, and care and, and be with guys who believed that they could help me, that, that this was not a hopeless situation, but that there was hope, there was a program, there was a way to freedom, and they had found it, and they were going to share it with me. That that was mm-hmm. just a very powerful healing experience for me. Yeah. Boy, what a what an incredible journey, the whole on-ramp to getting help, and so much of it through, through the uh, pastor of the church you were working for. And part of me wants to go back and ask him, who was counseling you through all of this? (laughs) How did he know how to handle this? How did he know what to do? Because that right there is the formula. I mean, if if there's, you know, the the pastors who are listening to this podcast, if you just write down what Dick did, (laughs) that Mm -hmm. sounds like uh, the way to do it. If I could write a formula out, that would be it. Hey friends, thanks for joining us on this week's podcast. I hope that it was a great benefit to you. Listening to part one of this incredible conversation with Brian Mulder. Stay tuned. A couple weeks from now, we will release part two. Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. And please, we love to see those ratings. So if you would go ahead and click uh, the stars to give us a rating, we'd really appreciate that. 